I think it's important to identify the relationship between the work we do and our race and, and think, thinking strategically about our place in struggles or our place in conversations and trying to be attentive and responsive to, you know, what are the places where we need to step in based on our own location. Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing real-world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. I'm joined today with Dr. Arlo Kemp, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Curriculum, Teaching and Learning at the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education of the University of Toronto. His research interests include anti-racism and anti-colonialism in K-12 and teacher education, critical whiteness and white supremacy in education, teachers' work and professional lives, and critical perspectives on neoliberalism in education. Arlo teaches in the areas of race and equity in education. His work has been published in various leading journals, including his sixth book, Troubling Reconciliation in Education Critical Perspectives, which is co-edited with Sanders Tires. Arlo is editor of the journal Curriculum Inquiry and is book series editor with Nina Bassia from Oise U of T, Denisha Jones, Sarah Lawrence College, and Rhiannon Maton from SUNY Portland of the Routledge book series, Teacher's Work and Teaching in Critical Perspectives. He is a settler living on Williams Treaty territory. Welcome Arlo to the conversation. Really excited to sit down with you today. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. And you know, I'm so excited that our paths crossed when I started doing my PhD at OISE and I've learned a lot from you and really interested for myself and also for our listeners. If you could tell me a little bit about your career trajectory, what led you to academia and to the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning at OISE? Well, we don't have uh, probably enough time uh, or you know, storage space to tell you the whole story. But I had a very, um, I wouldn't say troubled. I just had a, a very antagonistic relationship with formal schooling. I uh, was suspended and expelled from a number of schools. I attended about seven different high schools and uh, dropped out at one point and um, ended up finishing through an alternative school in Toronto's East End and didn't think I'd find myself back in any kind of formal schooling after that. Um, I did uh, with the... <clears throat> With the news of, of my, my first child, I had a sort of reckoning with the fact that I might need more formal education. And uh, with my very mediocre uh, 72 average on my grade 13 or my OAC courses from uh, the Ontario system, was able to get into Concordia University uh, and eventually transfer to the University of Toronto to finish my BA there. Um, so it was, a, it was a circuitous and strange route. And from, from there, I ended up um, actually meeting someone at my daughter's daycare, who was a professor here at the University of Toronto, uh, who, you know, after a number of conversations around politics and around education, um, I, I was teaching at a 
a private school at that time. And the person suggested I might look at a, a you know, a part-time master's program. And so I ended up doing that and ended up getting in. And uh, for the first time ever, I really felt like education makes sense and made sense and that I had a, a place in it. Um, and so that was, that was actually out of OISE. And, and from there, uh, I did my, my PhD here at OISE, working closely with folks in, in your department, uh, and, and after that did my, my postdoc at the University of California, Los Angeles. And after years of sessional teaching and, and different sort of types of temporary contracts, I was finally able to land the, the tenure track gig here at Oise. So, I mean, that's that's the short version of it, but it was uh, a, a long and winding one, that's for sure. That's very interesting because I've never heard that before, this story. I think for me, maybe it's my own upbringing or my culture. I very much idealized professors, especially university professors. Um, and I always only think of them as starting at the university level. I don't always have a chance to unpack what they were like, you know, before they came to university. And so I really appreciate you sharing that because it kind of gives me sort of um, hope or motivation that I don't have to be perfect all the time and that we can have different roads and different paths because I guess in my mind, it's like, if you're a university professor, you were always, you know, getting these 90s and you already had this path and, um, and all of that. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, you bet. I mean, the only good grades I ever got were in grad school. Everything else was a bit of a, 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 a yeah, everything else was different than that, mm -hmm. for sure. And I think before I get to the next question, because I taught in the alternative school program, I'd love to dig deep if you're, if you're able to, to tell me a little bit about your relationship with schooling. And, you know, you said that, uh, you know, maybe you got in trouble or you were suspended for whatever reasons. In what way did education sort of not fit with who you were? Um, because I strongly believe it's not the students, it's actually the system that's broken. Are you able to share a little bit about that and what kind of yeah, didn't work with yeah. you in the traditional system? Sure. I mean, I so I went to alternative schools growing up. Um, my parents were definitely very left-wing, particularly around class politics and community politics to a certain degree. And um, I, for me, I, I the idea of being a number or being in a system as a sort of widget was was always an offensive idea at least as long as i can remember being in school and that's partly because um you know in the, in the 80s when i was going to school in, in toronto and alternative schools i mean there was a lot of empowerment for kids in those spaces to understand themselves as agents and um and some of the the sort of factory treatment that happens in mainstream schooling is to my view um you know really punishing for lots of people and certainly not in the immediate it's not really, uh, it doesn't inspire agency. It doesn't, for a lot of kids, perhaps for most, it doesn't sort of lend itself to kids feeling empowered in and through those spaces. Um, and so at alternative schools, there was always, although having said that, I was I was kicked out of an alternative school because I stole uh, a, a copy of, a, of an exam and shared it with a friend. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not, that wasn't the system punishing me. Um, that was me screwing up. But in terms of, yeah, was I, was I given the opportunity to sort of develop enough buy-in? Um, I, I do want to say, you know, that I, I really, it's important to note when I think about my own educational biography, well, on one hand, you know, the sort of the treatment of a working class kid in schools at times was, was far from perfect. I recognize though, that I had a tremendous set of advantages and, um, you know, the connections I had with teachers 
because teachers, you know, were almost all white. Um, many of them were sort of expat Americans, which was true for my family as well. There was a cultural capital that was quite similar and, and recognizable for many of my teachers that was shared. So even if the teachers were seeing that I was, you know, getting into trouble, sneaking out, doing things at lunch that I shouldn't be doing. Um, I was a recogn- I was recognizable. I was humanizable for them, right? I was, I, my humanity was, was visible to teachers. Um, even if I was not all teachers, there were some teachers who really couldn't stand me. Um, but you know, I, I felt like I had allies. I felt like there were human connections. It was just the, the schooling piece of it. Um, I probably could have had a few more supports, Academically, I see what my the supports my kids have. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's a few, you know, things that are going on for me neurologically that I could have had better support for as a, as a younger kid. Having said all that, I, I can't help but sort of highlight the level of privilege that I had um, going through that. So e- even you know, I can tell that narrative is a very challenging, problematic thing where I was excluded, and that's true. Uh, but the other side of that is that I experienced all kinds of forms of inclusion along the way, and including being able to come back and finish and knowing how to navigate these school systems on my own and having sort of de- the chance to develop my own cultural capital in those spaces. And so I, it's it's a kind of a double-edged uh, sword in the sense that there, there is a problematic to be identified in terms of mainstream schooling, uh, but it wasn't immune to the functioning of, of, uh, of race privilege. And so I think my whiteness managed to be a passport, even for pretty rough travel. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that privilege, but also really thinking about, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the way that I think schooling, schooling, and you mentioned this, it sort of looks for those mainstream learners, or it's not always made for that, you know, and you say about stealing the test. For me, as an educator, I laugh because I think, you know, we have these tests, but as an educator today, I think, why not share a test? Why not give students the questions ahead of time? Because we're not really trying to test their rote learning. We want to test how much they can actually share about those questions. So it just made me laugh because I think as a teacher, I've grown a lot over the past 14 years of what I would give and what I wouldn't give. And so for me, that doesn't seem like an offense. I'd be like, yeah, you want the questions? Here are the questions, prepare and show me what, how you can apply this in the test tomorrow, you know? Yeah, so it yeah. just made me, made me kind of laugh about that. But, um, yeah. but I hear you, right? It's, it's both that. And I think uh, I agree with you, you know, regardless of the challenges I had in school, I still had the privilege of being English speaking, having parents who are English speaking and university educated to be able to navigate the system. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me, I've always wondered, and I think we've talked about this informally a little bit, but I wanted to know what the story is or, or what's the, you know, the rationale behind much of your research being focused on unconscious or implicit race bias. So I wanted to know, you know, how did you get involved with this topic specifically? personal interest, a story, an experience? Uh, what led you to the work of implicit race bias? Well, I, I don't have a, a magic little, you know, turning point aha moment on that. I mean, the, the work I've done on race bias has primarily come out of one of my research projects um, with, with secondary teachers in Toronto. And what drew me to it um, was, I mean, I, I my... My education, my sort of training is, is sort of sociology and education with a focus on race and, uh, you know, spent a lot of time with 
really important and heavy theory. Uh, and when I started reading and, and learning a little bit about, um, you know, ideas to do with unconscious race bias in particular, and then sort of learning about some of the links between sort of mainstream psychology, social psychology that look at that, but also going back to, you know, work on ideology in the unconscious. So like Althusser and others, uh, to me, it was just this really sort of fascinating entry point into understanding the, the mechanics of race, some of the mechanics of race as written in and by the body and on the body in some ways. And it just gelled with me as sort of another way of understanding um, some of the place and some of the ways in which race operates and the way people are producers and are produced by race discourse. So I don't think that it can, you know, it can't be understood in isolation. And, and I'm really quick to point to this in anything I write about it. it it's not going to solve um, by any means all of the things that need solving with regard to white supremacy, settler colonialism, and racism. Uh, but I do think it's a it's an interesting entry point to provoke conversation when taken up alongside analyses that include looking at institutions, that include looking at structures, and that include looking at systems. So for me, it just came about, I just saw this, this thing that was not being connected to sort of the heavy theory, the critical space conversations. And, and oftentimes I, I recognized um, a reluctance sometimes for people to, who, who do really, you know, important academic work. Uh, there's, there's sometimes a reluctance among the people who take up their work. Uh, so the, the application of that work doesn't always find its way um, into the professional lives and understandings of teachers. Like they don't always speak to each other. Sometimes there's a gap there. Not all theory ascends to practice. So um, this to me seemed like a really uh, interesting way. And, and also I, I'm always looking for like b ways to develop buy-in to bring white people, frankly, um, into conversations about race. And I think uh, that, you know, a starting point of the sort of ubiquitousness of this can, you know, be really helpful in provoking conversations that then lead to um, questions around accountability, questions around, um, you know, people's own responsibility, both on individual and, and more societal levels. So, yeah, there wasn't a, a specific spot in time, but over over a, a number of months, I was reading and listening to more about it and, and just finding out that, I mean, realizing there's just so much going on to do with how we understand the world. And you know this well from your work, Shaliza, um, that we were unconscious of. And, and to me, that's that what academia is supposed to do and at the best of times, uh, at least one of its jobs, I think, is to sort of create more accurate understandings of what's happening and understanding complex phenomena. And in our area, looking at these phenomena around race and power and punishment. So to me, this was this was an interesting place to spend time. Um, Having said that, I recognize, you know, as I said at the start, there's limitations to this. It has its place and it needs to be kept in that place, I would say. Absolutely. You know, working in, in the field, I see a lot of white teachers that probably would shy away from this work because they think it doesn't impact me or I don't know what to say or they have their own guilt and things like that. So I'm wondering, you know, um, as you identify as a uh, white cisgender man, you know, you've spoken a little bit about this, but how does this positively or negatively impact your work on race bias? For example, is it an advantage or disadvantage to getting that buy-in that you spoke about? 
I think it's, I mean, I, I, generally speaking, I, I think it's important to identify um, the relationship between the work we do and our race and, and think, thinking strategically about our place in struggles or our place in conversations and trying to, you know, be, be attentive and responsive to, you know, what are the places where we need to step in based on our own location. So as a positively or negatively impact your work on race bias, for example, is it an advantage or disadvantage to getting that buy-in that you spoke about? Uh, I think it's, I mean, generally speaking, I I think it's important to identify um, the relationship between the work we do and our race and and thinking strategically about our place in struggles or our place in conversations and trying to, you know, be, be attentive and responsive to, you know, what are the places where we need to step in based on our own location. So as a, as a cis white guy, um, for, for me, one of the reasons I, I, you know, when I think about my research trajectory, and I'll probably speak to this later on, I, I'm, I try to be very conscious about who I'm, who I'm spending time with and how I'm spending that time. And for me, as, as, a, as a white person, particularly when working on projects as a sole lead in those projects, um, I'm pretty careful and intentional around um, avoiding anything that is like extractive or harvesting of pain, right? I don't feel I have a right to that story. And, and so that leads to these questions around like, you know, where does the burden for anti-racist learning lie for white folks? And so as a, as a white anti-racist, I think it, a lot of that stuff falls to me. So it's definitely an advantage in terms of, um, you know, many, many conversations where folks might be less averse than they, you know, they might be open to hearing me talk about particular things. I know for a fact, having done various, you know, different equity oriented courses in teacher education over the last 15 years at various universities. I've had many colleagues and friends. Um, we've, we've shared our experiences and, and, you know, I know for, for many, many people, conversations around gender and race, um, are sort of disinvitational. So meaning that they find themselves, you know, really profoundly injured in the process or not taken seriously. And I'm thinking particularly of women of color uh, who, you know, as you know, Shaliza, I mean, everything from student evaluations to physical violence in, in a lot of spaces to, you know, microaggressions that aren't really that micro. There's, there's, so, there's so much race and gender politics happening in a class at a given time. So I know that I can... I can speak to some of these things with a little more built-in armor uh, when particularly with dealing with like white hostility. Uh, and, and at the same time, I feel like, you know, I, it's a different, it's a different part of my skin that's in the game in some of those conversations where the level of violence implied by a feisty statement from someone or a defensive statement is it doesn't, it doesn't hit my body the same way it might hit somebody else's body. So in, in doing that work, um, I would say, uh, there's, there's been primarily advantage. I mean, in in doing anti-racist work in general, uh, I, I can't ever say that I've been disadvantaged and I, and I rightly recognize, or I recognize that there are spaces, and, and there must be, there should be, and I support there being spaces uh, where, where white folks shouldn't spend their time. There's got to be places, discursive and otherwise, where uh, we just don't need a white voice in there right now. And and that's part of being an anti-racism generally. And, and because I think bias in the study of race bias so far has been so mainstream so far, and, uh, it, you know, I don't actually see 
any carving out so far of, of space for um, Black, Indigenous, people of color to, to sort of, you know, create, what do you say, racialized spaces in those ways within that discourse. I would imagine it's coming as it keeps continues to develop. And, and again, I don't identify that as disadvantage, but it, it is sort of identifying the relevance of my race for being in that work at that time. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And then I wonder within the work you do or within academia, what are some of the challenges or perhaps opportunities that you experience doing work around implicit race bias within academia? So, you know, you might work with folks from the social justice education department or the CTL department, but in general, doing this kind of work, um, is it challenging? Are there opportunities amongst your colleagues or when you go to conferences, you know, have you ever got those statements like, why are you doing work on implicit race bias? Like, you know, things like that, or, or have you faced any, you know, roadblocks along the way? I've faced, I mean, not, not in a, I've in candid moments with like friends of mine who are, you know, anti-racist folks there. I've definitely, I don't know, maybe I'm, I feel the need, I feel defensive about it oddly, uh, or maybe not oddly in the sense that it is so when done poorly or when taken up as like the solution for everything, it can be this awful uh, sort of, you know, as, as Eve Tuck would say, this sort of settler move to innocence around race. And, and, and I don't, you know, so I think it needs, I always feel a bit not protective of it, but defensive of that work. So I've had people say in private moments, like, you know, that that's, you're looking at the stuff that Starbucks does, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I am actually, I think it's an important thing. Um, but in terms of roadblocks to the work, no, I mean, I think if, if anything, um, it is it is a lot easier for a more widespread audience to understand. Uh, so there's for people who aren't sort of deep in um, you know critical work around race. There's not a lot of resistance to it, and in fact, it seems like a pretty recognizable thing. I've been able to you know have publishing opportunities, and and I've been able to get funded to do the work. And in terms of working with teachers on the project, for the most part, those were pretty. Um, you know, copacetic interactions and experiences. So, um, so I don't think there's been, you know, huge, huge pieces there. I, I do think, you know, there's, I'd love to see it taken up more broadly in critical spaces. Um, but I also recognize the risk of that because it, you know, if, if it is not kept in check by these more critical understandings of how it needs to be connected to systems and institutions and, and structures, then it, it does risk being this sort of vapid exercise. So I, I under, yeah. So the, the quick answer, I suppose, is not really uh, barriers. I, I don't. It's it's not something that a lot of people are looking at in spaces like ours. Um, having said that, I do a lot of other things, right? It's it's just it's one of the projects that I'm involved in. So um, absolutely, I I'd love to hear I'm, more I'm, about those. You know, I'd love to hear more about those projects either now or um, as the as the conversation progresses, but. It's interesting, though, you know, we, we talked about this offline before about the opportunities, you know, for book publishing or kind of getting to those conferences. <clears throat> and as a racialized, you know, PhD candidate, I always feel like those are like so, so far out. And I don't know if it's just my own internalized racism or if it's, you know, just having to like take that step. Uh, but I do know that in my own work, I think having light skin privilege as a light skin South Asian person does serve me in those ways. And so I wonder, this is just a critical wondering, um, if being white makes it so that 
it's easier for you to be in those critical spaces. And if you're taken more seriously, and if you get more opportunities in that way, that maybe someone who's racialized wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think in the vast majority of spaces I inhabit, being white makes it easier to be in those spaces. And, and I mean that really, really broadly, like take, take the notion of space any way you want. And in, you know, I've had the privilege of also spending, spending time in black space in, in ways that I think a lot of people don't end up having the opportunity to do, whether that's in academic or social context. And, um, that I can't say that's sort of characterized by, by discomfort. So I, I, to me that there's a huge set of privileges associated with that, including, you know, the, the currency of, of the, of university life, uh, continues to sort of rise and fall on highly colonial metrics, narrow understandings, and the sort of, uh, micro and not so micro domains of, of, of white privilege, which, uh, and, and ultimately we need to say not just that, I mean, what, what those amount to are the functionings and operations of white supremacy. And so I'm buoyed by white supremacy in all of these spaces doing critical work or not. And, and that can be, um, you know, it can, it, th- that extends to so many things, right? That extends to literally how I feel in an elevator sometimes on the way to a presentation, the way I'm heard or not heard, the way I'm talked over or not talked over, the way I'm given credit for someone else's idea, the way, you know, all, all these different things. And so there's there's no way it's not advantageous. Um, and that, I think, needs to be understood, not just in the domain of one particular, you know, sort of set of practices or interactions that it needs to be understood uh, interacting in, in the university space on my bicycle in the street, riding home from that university space. Um, there's just, there's a set of things. There's a, there's a current that is, you know, sort of gives me buoyancy, uh, that carries me to these different spaces. Not to say there aren't, you know, ways in which that's tempered and challenged and, and, but yeah, there's no, there's no way it's not a set of a, not just one advantage it's a set of advantages that's, uh, you know, maintained in spite of a, a lot of good work and good plans to do good work in, in university spaces, which may or may not successfully dismantle some of those pieces. Absolutely. And that's the systemic nature that you spoke about. Yeah. And it leads me to, you know, this next question that, I also struggle with at times is how do you balance both leveraging your privilege and also taking up space or not taking up space and amplifying uh, black indigenous and the voices of racialized folks? So how do you kind of balance that? Well, I guess I don't know that I could be the one to determine whether or not I do, but how I attempt to, I think both in, in what, what work I try to take up in, in the questions I ask of others around me or what I, you know, I've had different roles. I've had leadership roles at the university, uh, I've had roles as the coordinator of a research team. I, I, I mean, for me, I think that it's, you know, really, really important to be aware, not just of, let's say what I'm deciding to research. So I've, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about and working with white teachers for a reason. Um, and that goes back to my reluctance to sort of be extractive, um, as what I, which I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think also, you know, recognizing the challenges of, of 
taking seriously the challenges of doing this kind of work in community uh, means sort of leaning into these challenging situations. And I can give you one example. I was a graduate student on a project of mine, which looked at, um, it was a lot of work with white teachers. Um, The graduate student identified as South Asian and was a very critical anti-racist thinker, person still is. And for that person, uh, spending time in the sort of convoluted depths of white folks processing their racism or not processing their racism, uh, not, not, not just the fact that at multiple occasions comments from white teachers were uh, personally offensive to that, to that graduate assistant, that student here at Boise, but also just the sort of discursive and uh, emotional work of wading through the mud of you know, white reflexivity, even even sort of white reflexivity that was at times quite progressive and thoughtful. For this graduate student, that was that was there was a, an injury to that. There was just a I can't take this. I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in this mud anymore. And so, to, to to for me, it was important to try and create a space where that's like a conversation we can have, and then also move away uh, when it's okay to to do so, to, to get that person out of that situation if need be and still find a way to say, look, you're part of this project. I want to make sure you, you know, you're, you're still getting some of the fruits of it, like being able to go and share this on conferences and get stuff on your CV. So I guess what I mean to say is I think there's the, the macro piece of it. And then there's these little micro things and a lot of, so much of this lives in those small spaces. And, and then there's other pieces too. Like when I've been in leadership roles, just trying to, you know, say the challenging thing, trying to, um, you know, take up space when it's appropriate, when I can use my, my shoulders to put things on and carry a load. And then other times trying to, and I, and I, again, I, we'd have to go to others to determine whether or not to do this stuff, but trying to get out of the way and recognize that I, do I really have something new to contribute here? Or I think I know the answer to this, but there's a bunch of people we need to hear from in this room. So, which I think is, you know, there's, there's some learning in there that's got to do with gender as well as got to do with questions of, of race for sure. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, it was really easy to learn a whole bunch of what not to do's, uh, whether it was, you know, at university of Toronto or elsewhere, I have been in so many situations where the, the battle between the older white men in the room to take up all the air, uh, was so problematic and so obvious that, uh, early on as sort of a, a sort of very junior person in some, in some high level rooms once in a while, I was, there was some, you know, clear and present what not to do is which I tried to pay some attention to. Um, all of this though, the big caveat here is I'm still working on this stuff and I don't know, um, I don't, th- th- that balance between wanting to provide guidance, mentorship, be a leader for and with people. And at the same time, get out of the way. It's a challenging thing, right? It's a work in progress. And I think that the more I understand you know, each of these different contexts, whether it's a leadership role or working with students or, you know, co-authorship or whatever it is, I think the better I get at it, but that's, I I think it's a a lifelong learning and, and it changes based on who you're with too, right? Like to really do that and be reciprocal is to also continue learning and continue understanding um, how to, as as you've said in your question, how to get out of the way and and then how to to do the, the suitable work when it's time to do it. Absolutely. And there is no sort of right or wrong way, but it's sort of a learning moment, right? You learn and like you said, you learn what not to do and you kind of learn what to do and uh, things are changing all the time. Yeah. And then also take the, the, uh, in, in all of it, I think is a requirement 
to recognize one's responsibility, like to figure out how you're accountable to a particular situation. So that situation might be working with students, it might be working with colleagues, like figuring out what your role is there and who you're accountable and how you're going to be accountable. And that might be just something you go through in your head, but just trying to think about that in those situations. And it it's a good tool to help you keep your mouth shut. It's a good tool to be like, oh, wait, this thing I thought I was going to be responsible for or accountable to is kind of slipping away. So I better step up now instead of kind of just space out in the conversation. Um, so I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of paying attention. It's a kind of like um, almost a, a wide awakeness to go with Maxine Green's phrasing. Like, it, so I, I think there's, it's a practice. So yes, it is learning, but, but it is also, it needs to be intentional and it can't just be at a certain point you know, particularly when you're being positioned as an authority figure in a particular room, um, you got to, whether that is, whether it's stepping up to get out of the way or stepping up to be a strong leader when it's needed to, to sort of, you know, take a blow that you don't want somebody else to take. Um, you, it's, it's about, there's a, there's a consciousness required there to make sure that happens in a good way, even if it doesn't always happen perfectly. And that's where we get to your point around this idea of it being a learning experience with which I agree for sure. Absolutely. It's like stepping up and stepping back, like working with community, not mm. for community and knowing when that fine line is. And I think that's interesting. So the next question is really thinking about your work as a contributor in the book, Troubling Truth and Reconciliation in Canadian Education. You write about the challenges with mainstream discourses about reconciliation and perhaps the performative nature of reconciliation within the education system. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, please. Yeah, sure. So uh, that's an edited collection with uh, my colleague here at OISE, uh, Professor Sandra Styers, who's a Canada Research Chair and a fantastic colleague um, and a, a leading Indigenous scholar here in Canada. And um, so, I mean, the, as the title suggests, I mean, our, our hope... It actually wasn't our original title, but we were happy with where this landed, was to sort of trouble the mainstream conversations that were happening around reconciliation. And in education, we did see, as your question suggests, like these these huge sort of, to go back to Eve Tuck again, these moves to settler innocence happening. And so we really wanted to have a complicated conversation. Um, the collection itself includes uh, primarily Indigenous scholars from across the country and it really isn't one critique. Um, there's a, a number of critiques in there and they don't all, I think they all point in the same direction, but they don't all follow exactly the same, the same path. So there's, I can't really speak to the, you know, to the, to the politics of, of the entire piece because there's just so many parts. But I mean, we were really struck by this question of, you know, reconciliation in a, in a time of ongoing, Genocide. So if we take, you know, the, the TRC takes up the question of cultural genocide, um, the report on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls went a little further to suggest actual genocide without the cultural qualifier. Uh, and for a fleeting moment, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau acknowledged that before walking that back a little bit. Um, but we, you know, taking up this moment of, of genocide and as a concurrent phenomenon with uh, reconciliation. And to go to sort of to paraphrase the, the, the late Lee Markle, who we lost this past year, uh, I'll, I'll butcher the quote a little bit, but I mean, her sort of comment on it was, well, it's easy to forgive someone for, for you know, stepping on your toe, but not if they're still standing on your toe. And this, so, and that, the book was really trying to take up these questions. And at the same time, 
um, recognized that among settler scholars and among a number of indigenous scholars, uh, there's a lot of folks who hold out a great deal of hope and who are doing a lot of amazing work. And some of that falls under some of the language uh, of reconciliation. Now, I, I would separate that from, uh, you mentioned indigenization, and I, let's not talk about that. Um, I don't know what that is, That's and, and I don't know many people who do. And I think many times some of the worst performative stuff comes under that guise of like indigenizing the university without really clarifying what that means. Um, but we can talk about, you know, this very official discourse of reconciliation and to what degree does that follow some of the same pitfalls as, you know, previous and, and, and continuing discourses such as official multiculturalism. Um, so, or official bilingualism, like how, these, these different ways that we do culture on a mass scale in the mainstream in Canada. And this is one of these recent conversations. And so we were trying to, you know, further problematize that as so many scholars have done so well, particularly Indigenous scholars, uh, and at the same time, um, follow their lead as well in identifying uh, sites of possibility and sites of, of you know, transformative uh, anti-colonial work. So that's what that work was primarily seeking to do. But as they say, there's a lot of different voices in there, and there's a a lot of different arguments. So this by no means addresses all of that. Yeah, and you know, it reminds me of Eve Tuck's essay, you know, decolonization is not a metaphor because I feel like I'm hearing it more and more like reconciliation and then decolonization or I'm going to decolonize my framework or I'm going to decolonize my practice and, and folks are just using uh, these words as verbs or adjectives, you know, and, and scriptures or, or actions. And, and that's, I think, what's been what's been quite tricky is mm -hmm. trying to get folks to really understand the meaning because I think we get into this space of equity, diversity, and inclusion where it's very performative and it's all about buzzwords. And so I think your uh, explanation really, really helps. And I think everyone should read that. Um, I think it will be great. Awesome. Yeah. Let's have everybody read it. Great idea. Yes. We'll put it in the show notes. Everyone can read it. There so I want to talk to you about, you know, you talked to me and, and your bio we talked about this idea, this big scary word that scares a lot of folks, uh, and that is white supremacy. And mm -hmm. you talked about, you know, your work um, in whiteness, critical whiteness, and white supremacy in education. And you know, especially with ongoing incidents of discrimination and hate, um, I'm wondering if you can, you know, talk to me about why it's important for white folks to do the work. Um, you know, we talked about stepping up and stepping out. Why is it important for white folks to actually understand and unpack white supremacy and to take action? Right. Um, so the, the two pieces, one, I think the understanding, like to tackle it and do the work, one must understand. So there's sort of a, you know, first this, then this argument there. And in terms of, you know, why it's important I mean, it's only important if we care about inequity in housing healthcare, policing, the judicial system, education, it's, you know, I mean, we, we have, there's no getting around the fact that our structures and, and you know, with housing, private sector pieces or public sector pieces, such as education and healthcare, that these are, you know, radically patterned along racial lines, meaning there's some advantage through these systems and some disadvantage through these systems. And there's no denying that these are, um, you know, these are really fixed phenomena in Canadian society. There's never been another way. Uh, and in some cases, we've seen it sort of getting getting worse. So it, when, when we think about 
you know, white supremacy as a phrase, uh, I mean, the first thing we need to do is disabuse ourselves of the of the incorrect assumption that all we're talking about there are, you know, hooded rednecks walking down the street with torches. All, we're talking about something that's far more than the neo-Nazis. We're talking about something that is, um, it, it's, it's the ecosystem that, that, it, that acts as midwife to some of those sort of outlying explicitly white supremacist folks. And it's that larger thing that we need to give, um, you know, we need to give our attention to. So it's not, uh, we, yes, let's pay attention to Charlottesville. Let's pay attention to some of the, the rallies, but let's also pay attention to, to the sort of cultural ecosystem that, that gave rise to somebody like Trump or somebody like Bolsonaro or, or somebody like, like Jordan Peterson, uh, in terms of what, what, what is the sort of cultural climate in which, um, there's such a, an attraction to these sorts of figures and ideas. And, uh, in the Canadian context, and I think there's better work done, although there's more and more here in Canada, but there's a lot of work done in the States on this. In the Canadian context, I think, you know, particularly mainstream scholarship is just beginning to get at the ways in which, um, you know, Canada's a white supremacist enterprise from from the jump. That's that's the project. If you look at sort of, you know, Canada sort of came to exist and was defined uh, by the, the absence of Indigenous people it, 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 in its, you know, early definition. And we can look to historical records on this. It was, its, its work was to create a space uh, for particular white Europeans. And that work was the work of displacement. And that work was, of course, the work of colonialism and settler colonialism. And so that, you know, from the, from the sort of founding ethos of the country to, to you know, all of the sort of horrendous, um, explicitly militaristic, you know, techniques that were used for those invasion and those you know, settler colonialism um, actions, moves, practices, to very specific things like the establishment of uh, residential schools, which I'm sure you're really familiar with, and I'm sure anybody listening to this will be. But, you know, when we think about white supremacy in 2022, we need to do the work of also looking at, you know, the work of, of, of those in, uh, residential schools was, was very much about land grab, right? It was about displacement and land grab. It wasn't just we're going to sort of criminalize the potlatch and we're going to criminalize long hair. It was, it had a political purpose. It had a, a, a sort of geographic purpose. And then ultimately it was, it was the work of settler colonialism trying to have this sort of, you know, this institutional arm of the land grab process. And it, that involved, um, you know, a, 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 well, involved the work of genocide. And when we look, and a number of scholars have made this argument better than I will, uh, when we look at, you know, contemporary schooling, we see in many ways the extension of some of those same instincts. We see um, there's really fascinating work done um, by, well, by different scholars looking at different aspects of this. But we know that in certain uh, contexts of residential schooling, ideas around culturally uh, responsive or culturally representative pedagogy and curriculum were actually used. This idea of trying to come up with things that'll get students, or should we say prisoners, or captives or kidnapped children, things that get them more engaged and more on board with the official curriculum of those spaces. Uh, and so we, we, this idea of, you know, 
getting everyone on the same page. And that page being one of a Canadian page, the notion of a nation, a nation that has a right to be here, a nation that is great, a nation that has the right to determine uh, whose land is whose. The, these phenomena continue in schools. And when we put those alongside dropout or pushout rates, when we put those alongside, uh, you know, the violence to trans communities in schools, to trans folks of color in schools, we put that alongside uh, the phenomena, myriad phenomena. Again, we can go to healthcare, education, policing, housing. We can go to all these different spaces and see the the sort of, what would you say, Again, let's go back to the idea of an ecosystem, this really 360 ecosystem of uh, the persistence and the, and the embeddedness of, of sets of not just advantages and disadvantages, but disadvantaging systems, institutions, and structures. And there, of course, the flip side of that is always advantaging systems, structures, and institutions. So it, it, in my book, it's understanding white supremacy um, in education and and is is really concerned with recognizing that it, it's it's not just is there something racist in the curriculum it's not just did another teacher wear a blackface last week for halloween or whenever those things are important uh, but at the same time we have to recognize the links between class size and white supremacy we have to recognize the links between teachers working conditions and white supremacy we have to recognize uh, the links between you know the overall health and safety of schools particularly uh, for for women of color uh, and certainly for particular sets of populations, like is schooling, uh, when we look at safety plans, we look at, um, you know, zero tolerance plans, we look at the sort of violence that schooling threatens to uh, so many African descended boys. Um, those, are the, those are the spaces and the ways in which we need to consider the operations of white supremacy in the contemporary epoch. So it is, it is let's look at white supremacy, let's look at the Let's look at this in, in a, a sort of 360-degree view. So on one hand, uh, you know, a fool waving a, a flag at the trucker convoy, that's important. Uh, but what is the sort of ecosystem in which he's produced? Uh, what is the sort of, you know, set of, you know, <laughs> advantages that produces the sort of unconsciousness uh, that allows that to proceed? And, and how do we understand white supremacy um in a more deep and, and profound way and let it seep into our understanding uh, of, of the, again, getting back to system structures and institutions, right? We have to sort of, otherwise it's just this buzzword that is too easy to shirk off. It's really easy to not be a flag carrying, robe wearing, uh, you know, torch guy. That's pretty easy to avoid. It's a lot harder to think through one's own involvement and complicity in these various systems. So that's, that's sort of where I'm, that's where my next, uh, one of my next two books is really focusing in that direction, trying to articulate that in, in that, uh, in this Canadian context. And that's involves bringing in all of these sorts of things, including mm -hmm. you know, the lives of teachers and students in schools. Yeah, it reminds me of this idea that Dr. Kendi talks about, about neutrality. So it's like you, you can be non-racist or you can be anti-racist, you know, taking that action. And what you're talking about also, you know, what I talk to folks about is this ecosystem, again, of white supremacy, that it impacts white folks, but it also impacts Black, Indigenous, and people of color through code switching, internalized racism, opportunities, stereotypes, racial exhaustion, etc. And I know I was talking to folks about uh, the a white man who murdered the Fossil family in London, Ontario, and that he too is a product of that ecosystem of white supremacy that led him to commit that act. And for me, that's that's a problem of all of us. And 
The question I get asked a lot, and I don't know if you have some answers or some ideas, but what can white folks do to get involved in allyship or um, to be allies? What can they do, whether academically, whether as educators, the everyday person? What are some starting points for white folks to begin this journey and to really be authentic allies or co-conspirators or advocates? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I mean, I don't know that I, I think, you know, as you know, the notion of ally is always a challenging one. And, and that's, I don't know that it's something I can even define. I mean, certainly we can think about um, invitational allyship. So the idea of, you know, being open to hearing the call and, and receiving an invitation. I mean, right off the top, there's organizations like Surge, right, Standing Up for Racial Justice, uh, they have an active uh, group here in Toronto, and they're active all over the states as sort of a, as sort of a, a, a very, I would say, important and useful organization that does a lot of work in solidarity by being in a position of sort of providing support, particularly for organizations uh, led by and for folks of color who were fighting for racial justice in the U.S. and Canada. And so, Surge, standing up for racial justice, they have really identified this idea of of the work being about actively supporting. And, and so wrecking, it's, it's, it's that getting out of the way. Um, uh, Bettina Love has a, a great story about, you know, the idea of really being <laughs> with someone versus sort of performing being with someone. And, and she talks about a, a protest in which uh, a, a black protester had climbed up a, a metal pole and, and the cops were about to tase the pole. This is a famous clip of her speaking about this. Uh, and the t- cops were about to tase the pole and electrify the person. And uh, an older white gentleman went over and put his put his hands on the pole to say, well, if you're going to tase her, you're going to tase me. So, I mean, you know, we got to see during a lot of the sort of BLM um, organizing for racial justice, we did get to see places. And, and quite literally, there's nothing, they're putting yourself in the line, like in, in a non-metaphorical sense, like I'm going to go, be the first to the baton, partly because I want to be here, but partly because I think I'm less likely to get the baton than the person of color who's behind me. That's, I mean, that we don't have to speak in metaphor. You can go down and, and be in solidarity through action. Uh, and then I think, you know, being, being, getting the ego piece of it, right? Like figuring out that navigating these complexities to say, well, I'm, you know, there's a great work by Paul Cavell. It's a classic work of his from many years ago. And it was this work called I'm I'm white, I'm not white, I'm blah, blah, blah. And it was, well, I'm not white, I'm gay, I'm not white, I'm Jewish, I'm not white, I'm working class, I'm not white, I'm this. And it was this sort of like all these little moves to get away from acknowledging one's role as uh, benefiting from white supremacy or from whiteness. And so I think having, you know, being willing to have those um, honest conversations with yourself and then put that into action. I also think it's, we all have very different operations. Like when I think about my work around like how I carry myself in my professional life, that's different than when I, I, as a professor, that's different than when I was a classroom teacher. It's different than when I was a house painter. It's different than when I worked retail. It's different in all these different spaces. So I think we all have our own spaces in which we need to move. But um, I think without thinking through particular goals, without thinking through and acknowledging, so recognizing, which comes back to the beginning of sort of your question, like um, it, without this recognition, that action can't happen. So it does begin. And, and although it's really easy to dismiss and it's almost become a stereotype to say, well, 
you know, all these anti-racism books are flying off the shelves and whether it's candy or, or white fragility, or, you know, there's all these, this, this, you know, huge, huge explosion of, of these books flying off the shelves. And, and for sure, some of those aren't getting read, but many of them are. And I think we should remember that I think a lot of us, what we were really calling for before those books started flying off the shelves was for those books to start flying off the shelves and get read by people. And that, that's why those books were written. They weren't written as they were written so people could read them and they were written so as many people could read them as possible. So recognizing that there's people engaging, I think it's, you know, how do we think about mobilizing the fact that, you know, some relatively huge percentage has now read uh, Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Like, you know, thinking about those next steps and how you can put that into play in, in your own life, depending on where you are. And if folks haven't done that reading, I don't think it's, I don't think it's it's useless to to just do that reading. I don't think it's necessarily performative. And and why that's so important, I think, uh, is one of the reasons that book is written is so that, you know, for a white person reading it, um, for many of those books anyway, it's it, it does the work that you would otherwise have to sort of, you know, ask a person of color to go doing for you. Like, explain this to me. How can I do it's It's sort of getting in there and, and explaining some things so that that really heavy labor to which you alluded earlier, uh, which might involve code switching, which might involve mm-hmm. exhaustion, which might involve all those things. Like, no, it's in the book. Read the book and then come talk to me, you know? So, um, and there's so many of those books. So I, I, don't, I don't take that as just a, a sad performance gesture. I take that to be really encouraging, and I think uh, we're yet to see, we've yet to see the the sort of fruit of all of those things. But um, I think ultimately, you know, we've got an election underway here in Ontario. Um, we can put the lack of attention to racial justice and focus there. I've just come back from Buffalo, New York, where there was that shooting over the weekend. I was there. Uh, Sunday and the shooting happened on Saturday and, and that was a, a white supremacist terrorist attack. And um, what we've seen, this is the, the first conversation that I've seen in mainstream U.S. media about white supremacy and things like replacement theory. So on one hand, you know, one third of Americans believe in some form of replacement theory, a new study has shown. On the other hand, mainstream conversations around sort of anti-immigration as white supremacy are now quite prevalent in a lot of spaces. So I mean, I think we're at a moment of, of a really sad moment, obviously, and a really troubling one. And at the same time, there is there is possibility there. So attending to that possibility, nurturing that possibility is key. Absolutely. So I think for folks I'm hearing, you know, I definitely think the awareness and critical dialogue and critical consciousness development through reading the books and having the conversations and really seeing what's happening in our world and, and being critical of it and having those dialogues. And then you also mentioned really getting there in the front lines and literally putting yourself in the way, in harm's way or, or, or getting engaged in that way. You also mentioned surge and, and getting involved in that way too. So lots of different ways for folks to learn. And I, and I agree with you. It can just start with volunteering or reading a book and, and just examining where you're at. So I, I really like that. To end, I want to like ask you about any exciting projects or researches, research that you're currently working on or anything else that you want to share that you didn't have a chance to share. I'd love to, to hear about it. Sure. Um, well, I can tell you a little bit about um, my next, my, ne- my new research project is, um, it's a community partnership with uh, an, a, a legal clinic called Justice for Children and Youth. And 
uh, particularly their, uh, they've got a, a program run by a woman named Sarah Pohl, and they do advocacy work. Uh, it's called CASA, this program within the clinic. And they do advocacy work for youth who uh, have precarious immigration status here in Canada. And so what a lot of folks refer to as undocumented youth. And so um, this project is going to be working with uh, the youth with precarious immigration status to, you know, develop uh, basically a set of research instruments to study and better understand the educational experiences of these youth. So it's it's kind of participatory and it's really geared towards something that uh, teachers, community members and um well, and in kids themselves uh, can benefit from. So I'm really excited to be undertaking this work over the next few months in partnership with CASA. Uh, and it's, it's, I mean, for me, in terms of like a trajectory of my research, um, it's really important to me that, that going forward, a lot of what I'm looking at involves, you know, engaging community and doing work where if someone says, well, you know, how does this serve community and who does it serve? Uh, being able to answer that in concrete terms is is really important to me. And it's something I've sort of arrived at. And it's something that lots of people do really well uh, and lots of people don't in terms of, you know, and, and, and this is not to sort of put down academic work that doesn't necessarily land in concrete places. That's, that's necessary as well. Um, and I'm in, influenced by that. But I, what I'm really excited about at the moment is to move on to this this next uh, this next project, and then, of course, some some other work, which maybe you'll talk about at other times on your podcast around uh, possible further work with teachers uh, around questions of race bias. And then I, you know, have this uh, collection, uh, not a collection, it's a monograph coming together about um, some of the ideas that I discussed previously, like trying to read the landscape of education broadly with this understanding of white supremacy that I haven't seen, I haven't seen in scholarship so far. Uh, we see it like we see it as truth in lots of community work. We see it in lots of struggle, but to see it in academic space, I haven't seen yet. So, so I've got a couple, you know, writing pieces, a couple of research pieces, uh, and then of course, excited to get back to, to teaching in the fall because it's been a few months since I finished my last courses. Thank you. And do you know what you're teaching this fall coming up for folks yeah. who maybe are listening that are at Boise and can take a course with you? Sure. Yeah. I'm teaching um, a course called Architectures of Whiteness, Race, and Settlerhood, uh, which is in the CTL department. And I'm teaching another course called Anti-Oppressive Education uh, in Schools, which is a, a sort of introductory social justice course in CTL. And then next year in the spring, I'm teaching a new course uh, for our Master of Teaching program uh, on whiteness and white supremacy and teaching specifically. So that I'm very excited to teach that for the first time. Those are very exciting. Maybe you'll let me audit some of those courses as course. I'm, a, I'm a serial course taker. Yeah, you bet. I'm, I'm just hoarding the courses as I, as I continue. Well, thank you so much, Arlo. I really appreciate sitting down with you. I know that we've had many conversations, but I definitely learned a little bit more about you today and really appreciate your time um, and your knowledge and sharing with us. And I think this is many, one of many rather collaborations and conversations for all of you listening. Uh, please do uh, get in touch with Arlo. How can they connect with you? Are you on Twitter? Are you on Instagram? Are you on LinkedIn? No, uh, they can email me. You're welcome to put my email in your uh, in your show notes. All but right. I, have no, I have no social media. You can put my cell phone number down. They can just call me. Just call me at home. 
anytime. Yeah, I'll, I'll put your number out there. I don't know about that, but um, I will put your email. And, cool. um, you know, I, I really think that this work is ongoing. It's very critical. So I'm, I'm hoping that folks listen and we will definitely have a part two to see how things are going. If anything has uh, shifted where the world's at in you know six months to a year. So thank you again. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Curated Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribe and listen to past episodes at www.curated-leadership.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about Curated Leadership, visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership.